to you this morning. Please take out your Bibles and open them to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24 is actually where we're going to start this morning, and you might think we are preaching through the book of Exodus. I kind of like to call it the gospel of Exodus. I know it's not a new... Good morning. Is this Riley's first Sunday at church? Good morning, Riley. She's doing a great job. There are some other children in this room that she needs not take note from or example from. Talking to Violet over there this morning. Okay? That's, I, I love... I love I, our church loves kids, and um, before, before I became pastor here, Pastor Dan Martin and his family prayed that God would fill our nurseries and fill this church with kiddos, and I honestly believe that we are experiencing answered prayer of someone else's prayer as we have so many kiddos uh, here in our church. Um, so anyway, I don't always remember to welcome our very, very first time babies, but I just saw her sitting there all quiet and snug, and I'm thankful, praise God, for his gift to your family. Luke chapter 24 Jump down to verse 27. This is a weird place for us to start our sermon in the book of Exodus this morning, the gospel of Exodus. Uh, Luke chapter 24 is obviously the end of the gospel of Luke, and Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. Some of you know this story, right? And his two disciples, they don't know who Jesus is. Somehow he's hidden himself from their eyes. They don't understand who it is that's walking with them. And Jesus begins, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So do you understand what Jesus is doing here? Some of you might. Some of you, this might be an unfamiliar passage to you, but when it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's shorthand terminology for the Old Testament. Moses is referring to the books that Moses had written, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets were the remainder of the Old Testament literature. And so Jesus begins explaining to these two disciples, beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the prophets, the Psalms and the prophets. Jesus begins to explain to them, these two disciples, everything that the Old Testament had to say about him. And then if you look down into verses, verse 44 of the same chapter, Luke 24, the, jump down to verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be Fulfilled. So Jesus is saying the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of those books are full about truths about me. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And the scriptures there are referring specifically to the Old Testament scriptures. And so if Jesus were here this morning, if Jesus were standing before you this morning, I'll put it that way, and he were teaching you from the book of Exodus, there's something that he would want you to know very clearly before you even opened your Bibles to the book of Exodus. He would want you to know that the book of Exodus is all about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when we gather together as a church, we are not gathering primarily because we're Baptists. In fact, some of you come to church here in spite of the fact that it's a Baptist church. That's not why we've gathered here together this morning. We're not gathered here together primarily because we all have the same kind of political, social background or understanding or even belief system there. 
we're not gathered here together this morning because we have nothing better to do. We're not gathered together here this morning because we agree on a worship style or around a personality or anything like that. We have gathered here this morning because the scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. Because church is all about pointing you to Jesus. There, there's, there's one hero, there's one banner worth gathering under, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself wants us to know, Old Testament, it's all about me. So we have to read the Old Testament with Jesus' glasses on. I'm teaching the junior high Bible class at Dalhart Christian Academy right now. One of the things I keep talking with them about is this. We, we all live life with worldview glasses on. We interpret everything that we see in the world around us with these, with these lenses that are called Bible lenses. And so we, we live life with, with a Christian worldview. Jesus wants us to put on Jesus' lenses as we read the Old Testament. Now, let's go to Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. Now, we've already been making a big deal about Jesus in the book of Exodus. When we saw Moses... Moses pointed us ahead to a baby, a very unlikely baby who would save his people someday. When we looked at the Passover lamb, we were reminded of another lamb who would come and give and shed his blood to rescue his people. As the people uh, uh, walked through the Red Sea, the Red Sea reminded us of passing through the waters of judgment, just like Christ went through judgment for us the living water in the desert we looked at in Exodus chapter 15 reminded us of Christ, the living water. The manna that we looked at last week reminds us of Jesus Christ, the living bread from heaven. And so this morning, again, we're going to read a passage that points us ahead to Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 17, I'll start reading verse 1. We're just going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 17. Now, I really wish um, Matt... Moore was able to be here. He, he is in just the busiest season of their watermelon season right now. But for those of you who took the Sunday night Bible teaching class, this was the chapter that we studied together and everybody kind of prepared uh, Bible lessons on. And Matt, Matt could preach this passage even better than I could. I wish he was here to do it this morning. So you're going to have to take second, second rate uh, preaching as we look through Exodus chapter 17. Verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses right there is, is making the equivalence of quarreling with me is testing the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Moses felt like his life was actually threatened because of the circumstances that he was in here. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, 
and you shall strike the rock and water shall come up out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, don't leave Exodus chapter 17. We're going we're gonna to move around a couple of times in our Bibles this morning. So you have that story there fresh in your mind, right? What God just did. Water from the rock. That's the story. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Page 1,572 in my Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I want you to know, Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What, what, is he, what events is he describing here? Yeah, the Exodus events. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. What is he talking? What spiritual food is he talking about? Manna. And all, that's right, the breakfast manna. And all, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And the rock was whom? The rock was Christ? Let's see if we can make sense of that together this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Now, please do, please do what none of us in our own strength can do. Please help us to see like you gave those uh, followers of yours, those apostles in Luke chapter 24. You opened their eyes to see and to understand what you were teaching from the Old Testament Jesus, would you please give us eyes to see you in the Old Testament? Spirit of God, would you please give us eyes to see and a heart to feel and, and a will to obey? And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Sermon title this morning is this, Water from the Rock, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And you know that I always begin my sermon with a main point, but you're going to have to wait till the very end this morning to hear the main point of the sermon. Let's walk through this passage together and see if we can uncover together what the main point is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. First of all, let's see the problem, the problem as it presents itself in Exodus chapter 17. Now, we've been walking with the people of Israel. We feel the dust on our sandals. We feel the parched tongue in our mouth as we walk through this wilderness, this desert area um, in, in, the, uh, in, in the Sinai Peninsula there. And I've, been, I've never been into the Sinai Peninsula, but I've been in Egypt, I've been in Israel, I've been in some of those desert locations. And so I can get a sense of, you know, kind of rocky, broken ground. It would be similar to some of the western uh, uh, deserts between here and California um, of just kind of nothing really lives there, nothing grows there, a uh, very barren area. And God brings them to a place called Rephidim, Rephidim in verse, uh, is it verse 1? In verse 1, they camped at Rephidim, and the word Rephidim means resting place. So they come to a rest stop, and at the rest stop, you expect that there are going to be a few things. It, 
I, now, I'm not one of those people who normally, if I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop at a place where I can get fuel and drinks and use the restroom. I still have a hard time even comprehending the, like a rest stop. It has like one thing that I need. And like the other two things, something to eat and drink and uh, fuel, aren't available at a rest stop. I don't, like, I don't know whose idea it was to say, let's just provide one thing, just a bathroom. Like you just put a fuel station and snacks and drinks there as well. Is anybody else confounded by rest stops? No one is. Okay. I'm just telling you for my entire life, I've always thought, every time I see a rest stop, I'm like, why would I stop there? They have one of the three things I need. I'm going to keep going and get everything that I need in one place. But these people, I, I didn't realize that I would be the only one in here that had a trouble, that had trouble. Like, I, my, my brain has trouble comprehending the significance of that. Um, kind of like puzzles. You've heard me talk about puzzles as well, right? But we won't, we won't go there. You'll have to come back again to hear me talk about puzzles. Uh, just like in chapter 15, they're at a place now where there's no water. And we've been watching God test the people of Israel over and over and over again. And I believe what God is doing here in Exodus chapter 17 is he's bringing another test into their lives. But if you were listening as we read through the passage this morning, you're going to note that it's not simply God testing the people. Who else is being tested here in this passage? Yeah, it says that the people are are testing God. Once again, let's talk about God testing his people. God, God brings his people to a place where it appears that they don't have what it seems obvious to them that they should have. And God's not being harsh. He's not being unloving when he tests his people. A teacher is not being harsh and unloving when she tests her students she loves her students. She desires to see them grow. And so she brings something into the lives of her students that her students are not necessarily eager for or, or excited about. But that test is because that teacher wants their students to grow. And God brings tests into the lives of the people of Israel, and he brings tests into our lives as well. And what should the people of Israel have done? They show up. They show up in a place where water is not being provided for them. Now, imagine the first morning that they woke up there at Rephidim, and they realized, we don't have enough water to, to keep us and to keep us going here. What would have happened that morning when they woke up? What would they have already experienced that morning as they begin to grumble about water? They would have already experienced miraculous provision from God, right? Like the manna was there that morning. Can you imagine them? I don't know how you gather manna. I don't know if it's like a, this kind of thing, or I don't know how you, I don't know how to gather manna. Um, but they're gathering manna. Okay, imagine this is how you gather manna. They're gathering manna. Man, I wish we had some water. I don't think God's going to take care of us today. Man, I'm really worried. Let's go find Moses and right, like miraculous provision and complaining about what they. This is the way we so often live our Christian lives, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one, and you could. You could stop on any given day, and if I said, okay, like, tell me how God has been kind and faithful and gracious to you, and you could start enumerating one, two, three, four, five. God is so good to me in so many ways, and with the same breath, begin to grumble and complain about the things that we feel we are missing out on. That leads us to point number two. God's people began protesting. They're complaining. They're grumbling. This is the fourth time already in the book of Exodus that God's people, after having been delivered, they're grumbling about God's provision for them. They protest and grumble. 
That brings us to point number two, the protest. There we go. Pastor Phil Riken, as he comments on this passage, he identifies three ways in which the people protest against God. And we can see these these three things, he puts them very, packages them very neatly. Let me give these to you here. The people protest in three, three ways. First of all, they, they demand God's provision. Look in, in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now they're grumbling and complaining to Moses, but they recognize absolutely that Moses is God's representative. Moses is God's man for them. And so, They go to Moses knowing that essentially they're going through the ambassador from God to God. And they demand something of God. They are demanding, give us water to drink. They're not asking for it nicely. Would you please provide water for us? They're not waiting for it, but instead they're insisting on it. They were telling God that he had to give them what they wanted or else there were consequences that Moses was going to have to pay. The second thing that the Israelites said, the second way that they were protesting, was by denying God's protection. So under point number two, if you're a note taker and you want to list three ways that they protested, the first was they demanded God's provision. Number two, they denied God's protection. In verse three, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst. They were, they were denying the fact that God was protecting them. In fact, they were accusing God of manslaughter. You dragged us out here, and it wasn't, it wasn't like they were saying, you dragged us out here and now we're going to die. You brought us out here for the purpose of killing us. They were denying God's protection. And number three, they were doubting God's presence. Look down in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? They were testing God to find out, is the Lord among us or not? So they were, number one, demanding God's provision. Number two, they were denying God's protection. And number three, they were doubting doubting God's presence. And when things got difficult and when things got challenging in just one area of their life, God is miraculously providing for them in another area, but in one area of their life, they begin to become fearful it doesn't even say that they had run out of every drop of water that they had. They probably had, you know, Dasani water bottles lying around. But they looked and they saw, man, we're going to run out of these water bottles pretty soon. I'm starting to panic. What are we going to do? Brothers and sisters, I, I, and I've, I've told you this. I say, I've said this for the last several weeks in a row because I really do feel this way. I look at the people in the story of the book of Exodus, and I'm still tempted to think I'm a better Christian than them. I, I look at them and I think, I, I'm just telling you, I wouldn't have been that foolish. I would not have operated that way. Like they've seen the, the greatest plagues in the history of the world. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've seen this miraculous um, deliverance from the, the slavery in Egypt. They are watching God provide water for them. They're watching God provide manna for them. I'm just telling you, I wouldn't have been a grumbler. But my own life experience proves that I'm no better than the people of Israel. Reading the book of Exodus is looking in a mirror for us, brothers and sisters. Now, Lord willing, we will learn from it and grow from it. These people who had every day been experiencing God's miraculous provision of manna were complaining. And we 
have the miraculous provision of Jesus Christ, the living bread, and the presence of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us in a way that Old Testament Israel did not know and did not experience. And what do you and I do when things get hard and when things get challenging? How do we respond to God? Well, we do the same three things. We begin to demand God's provision. God, you must do X, Y, and Z for me. And if you don't, there are going to be consequences, right? Like, we, like as if we could wag our finger in the face of God. We, we demand God's provision or else. We deny God's protection. We, we begin to think, Lord, you, you have brought us into this wilderness for us to die of thirst. I'm in a bad spot and I'm going to die. You are not here with me. We begin to deny God's protection. We begin to doubt God's presence. We, we might even say things like, well, God wasn't in these circumstances that are in my life. Or, or God's not with me. Or God has forsaken me. Or God has abandoned me. We may feel that way and begin to doubt God's presence. And we, we can begin to protest this exact same way that uh, God's people here in Exodus chapter 17 protested against God. Here, God's people were essentially putting God on trial. Exodus chapter 17 is described in a couple different places here as the people of God now putting God on trial or putting God to the test. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a work by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. It's the idea of God being on the witness stand. God, God is the one who's under trial now. Verse 7 says, they tested the Lord. They were accusing him. Let's put it in very, very blunt terms. Okay, let's just let's strip it away and say that they're, they're accusing him of murder. Look in verse 3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock. And if they were going to die, if they're going to die here, the people of Israel are grumbling against Moses, but they're grumbling against God. As they grumble against Moses, it becomes clear that Moses fears for his life. Uh, what verse was that? They're ready to stone me. Verse 4. And so apparently the people of Israel, look, if we're going to die out here in the wilderness, Moses, you're going to be the first to go. We're going to see to that. And so God, God convenes a courtroom. The people of Israel are demanding his provision, denying his protection, doubting his presence, and they are putting God on trial. And so you know what God does here in this verse? It's in this passage. I'm not making any of this up. He, he pulls together, here in Exodus chapter 17, he pulls together a courtroom. You're going to put me on trial? Imagine the God of the universe gladly volunteering to take the seat on the witness stand. And this is what God is going to do. And we see him doing this. Look, um, uh, verse 7 again says that they tested the Lord. Um, and if they're going to, uh, they're going to put him on, on trial. And so here's how God convenes the, the courtroom. Look in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before me, taking with you, some of the elders of Israel. Now, when disputes within the community of the nation of Israel, when, when disputes came about, which imagine traveling through the desert with several million people, 
I have a feeling that on occasion there were some butting of heads with each other, right? And so as they're making their way through the wilderness, there would have been these differences and these challenges. And Moses and the elders of Israel would often be the ones to hear the, you know, the, uh, the accusation, or, the, or they kind of acted as a courtroom, and the elders were the ones who would help make uh, those decisions for the people of Israel. And so when, Moses, when God tells Moses to, uh, to call together these elders in verse 5, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, God is saying, okay, prepare the courtroom, prepare the jury, get them, get them ready. These men were often called upon to help settle disputes in disputed matters. And then God also tells Moses <coughs> excuse me, to take his staff with him. Now, in a courtroom, a judge has a gavel, right, this hammer that he bangs down in order to pronounce a verdict. And often, uh, the banging of that gavel is representative even of the judgment that's going to come. You're, you're going to face these fines. You're going to face imprisonment. You're going to face execution. Like, this, this is a significant moment. And when God tells Moses to take his staff, he says to Moses, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. And again, this isn't just like, hey, Moses, get ready. He's doing something very intentional. He's not only telling him to take the staff. The staff had been used to do a number of different things. He very specifically says, take the, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. When, when Moses struck the Nile, he was, it was an act of judgment. It was an act of judgment against the people of Israel or, of Egypt. He was striking the Nile, and it was going to turn to blood. And God is saying, bring, bring the instrument of judgment. Bring the, the, the staff, which in this moment is going to represent wrath and anger and punishment and judgment. Assemble the jurors and bring the, the judgment staff with you. And come, and, and, I, and I, I'm ready. And then this, even the name of the place that Moses is going to name the place um, uh, is called Masa and Meribah. Masa means to test, and Meribah means to dispute. And so even the, the names that Moses is giving this place after the fact all represent that God is the one who's going to go on trial and be on trial here. One pastor says, instead of starting with God and evaluating your experiences from his point of view, we so often start with our own circumstances and judge him on that basis. And what is happening here in this courtroom is God is giving now his perspective, his judgment on what's going on here in Exodus chapter 17. I referenced the, the work by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. Let me read to you a little bit of that. He says this, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. The modern man, that would be us, by the way, for the modern man, the roles are reversed. For modern man, he is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen. The trial may even end with God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And that's where C.S. Lewis gets the title for that work, God in the Dock. And brothers and sisters, so often we are ready, just like the people of Israel, to put God on trial. And if he has a good defense for himself, we're willing to hear it out. Otherwise, we feel as though we can legitimately bring a judgment 
against God, like the people of Israel. Again, for those reasons, they were demanding God's provision. They were denying God's protection. They were doubting God's presence. Brothers and sisters, we evaluate the circumstances of our life either from God's point of view or from our own. We need to do so from God's point of view. We are often like the people of Israel and we're looking at things from our point of view and we want to put God uh, uh, on, on trial. Often our understanding and expectation of what life is supposed to be like right now plays into this. See, the people of Israel, I'm, I'm going to remind us of this for quite a while because they're going to be here for quite a while. Where are they? And I don't mean Rephidim. Like, where are they in general terms? They're in the wilderness. They're, they're still in their wilderness wandering. And what they wanted, what they desired was the promised land. They wanted life in the wilderness. To, they wanted the promised land. Their hearts were longing for the promised land, the, the land flowing with milk and honey, God's people in God's place with God's presence. They were longing for the promised land, just like you and I desire, we long for the promised land. And whether you know it or not, you do. The youngest kiddos in here long for the promised land. Teenagers, what you're longing for is peace and comfort and delight and joy. Young marrieds, what you are looking to your spouse to acquire for yourself can only be found in Christ and in the promised land. Middle-aged couples, you've begun to realize that there just isn't anything in this life that's going to really, really just like finally and ultimately, I can't say that word, ultimately, make us go, oh man, yeah, this is the life, right? I mean, commercials and television try to promote that, and it's a lie from hell. Older people, some of you have lived long enough now where you're beginning to realize, I'm not even looking for my satisfaction here anymore. Can't get no satisfaction here in this life. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is very, we, will, we, will, we will read our Bibles wrong. We will have expectations of God that are wrong. We will um, expect things in this life now if we don't understand that right now you and I are in the wilderness. We're not in heaven yet. We're not in the new heavens and new earth yet. There is a day where all wrongs will be made right. There is a day when all of our diseases will be completely healed. There is a day where you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. But it is not promised to us here and now. Not yet. There are many of the joys. There are many of the the promises. There's as much of the peace um, that is promised to us in the new heavens and new earth that breaks into our here and now. Thank God. That much of that breaks into, but that final shalom, what we are desperately longing for and hoping for and searching for, only comes in the new heavens and the new earth when we are God's people in God's place in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. Remember, what God is doing with the people of, of Israel is he is delivering them from Egypt. And now by his spirit, he is tabernacling with them as they travel through the wilderness, as they are on their way to the promised land to dwell with them forever. And that is your story as well. God, if you have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God has delivered you from the slavery to sin. And you are now Uh, his spirit is tabernacling with you on your way to the promised land. We're still in the wilderness. I know you know that. But you would stop trying to make this wilderness into a promised land if you believed it and lived it. You'd be a lot happier if you stopped trying to turn the wilderness into the promised land. If you would stop expecting the wilderness to be the promised land. 
Let's not put the Lord God to the test. Let's remember where we are, who we are, and who He is. And finally, and lastly, where we get great hope, number three, the provision. God God does something here where He allows Himself to be put on trial, right? Get the elders together, bring the staff together. He allows himself to be put on trial. He's going to prove himself to be innocent. And then, you ready? Here's the big reveal. And then he himself is going to take the judgment. He himself is going to take the punishment. He himself is going to be struck with the rod. Again, this is not some, um, uh, uh, not geography, um, geological, I think that's the right word I'm looking for. This is not some geologically cool thing where, like, God says, go to this rock, and if you hit it just right, there is a Ogallala aquifer one inch beneath the rock. And if you smack that thing, it's going to break forth, and water is just going to fill. That's not the significance of what's going on here. They were demanding his provision, denying his protection, and doubting his presence. But the water flowing from the rock proved that all of these things were still true of their God. So says, again, Philip Graham Ryken. They were demanding his presence or his provision. They were denying his protection. They were doubting his presence. But when Moses strikes the rock, the water that flows out makes it clear that he is going to provide for them. And he has not left them unprotected. And his presence is still with them. Note exactly what's happening here in these verses. Moses will take this staff of judgment and he will strike the rock with it. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's nothing accidental in these passages. And again, I'm not making any of this up. Look in, verse, um, look in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders, and take in your hand the staff with, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, Moses, there on the rock at Horeb. Why, why is God saying where he's going to stand. Why is God telling Moses, go to the rock, take your staff, get the elders around, and I'm going to stand right in front of you at the rock? God's not just, I mean, there's plenty of other times where God tells a story where God does a thing and he doesn't tell us where he's standing. I think, I think God is making a significant point here. Moses, when you swing and strike the rock, you're swinging and you're striking me. Moses will take the staff of judgment and he will strike the rock with it. He splits uh, Psalm 78. I'm, I'm quoting from Psalm 78. He splits, he split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of the rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. So friends, let's think very carefully about this. The people grumbled. They are sinfully accusing God. They deserve, they deserve the rod of God's wrath. But instead, God himself is struck with the rod of God's wrath. And from him flows water that provides water of life for all of his people. What does that remind you of? 
let me read it again. Here is a group of people who deserve the rod of God's wrath. And instead of God striking the people who deserve the striking, God himself takes the striking. The rod of God's anger falls on the rock. God is standing there on the rock. And from him, from him, as the, as the rock is struck, as the rock receives a death blow, what flows from the rock? Life. The water of life flows from the one who is struck with the blow of death. Does that sound just a little bit? Like, I have a feeling. Okay, remember how we started the sermon? Luke 24. I have a feeling when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with his two disciples, and it says that beginning at Moses and the prophet, he, he explained. I mean, I have a feeling. He says, oh, you guys know the story? You remember the story in Exodus chapter 17 when, when our father, Yahweh, delivered the people of Israel, and they were there in the wilderness, and and there was, uh, and they, and we, and God brought them, to, brought our people, right? A Jew speaking to Jews. He brought our people to Rephidim. And and we all wondered where there was going to be rock, uh, where there was going to be water. And God told Moses to strike the rock. Do you know that that rock was actually a picture of the Messiah? <coughs> God is the rock throughout Scripture. Genesis 49, Isaiah 30, he's called the rock of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, he is the rock whose works are perfect. Psalm 18, he is the rock who is a fortress and a refuge. Psalm 95, Deuteronomy 32, he's the rock of our salvation. So now turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn again, and finally, we'll end here in this passage. So turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because we are we are living when we live in time and space, and we have 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to make very clear to us what's going on there in Exodus chapter 17. I want you to know, brothers, Paul is, Paul is <clears throat> making a point to the brothers and sisters gathered there in Corinth. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all drank, excuse me, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Just like the people of Israel put God on trial, but they were the ones who deserved trial, we do the same and deserve the same. And just like God himself took the blow of God's judgment from Moses' rod, Jesus took the blow of God's wrath and God's judgment on the cross. It was not nails in his hands. It was not a Roman execution cross. It was not a spear in his side. Those weren't the judgments of God's wrath. Other human men have died the same way. It was when God poured out his holy, righteous anger against sin on Jesus Christ. That was the significant sacrifice. That was the rod. That was the blow from the, the, the judgment rod against sin when Jesus Christ took on himself the sins of those who would come to him and repent. Just like God himself took the blow of God's judgment from the, from the rod, Jesus took the blow of God's judgment on the cross. And just like the rock in the wilderness provided life for God's people, so Jesus Christ provides life for all who will come to him. 
Exodus chapter 17 is not a cool miracle trick where Jesus gave water to people. I mean, it is that. It absolutely is that. But that's at its bare minimum what's going on in Exodus chapter 17. What's going on in Exodus chapter 17 is God is proving how he works to provide life for people who don't deserve it, for people who deserve punishment, for people who deserve, for people just like me and you, who know better and we grumble anyway, and we deserve to be punished, and Jesus Christ himself took the punishment for our sins. So here is the main point this morning. Jesus is the rock who was struck so that his people could live. Jesus is the rock who was struck so that his people could live. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jesus is the rock. And if there's any doubt, if there's any question as to whether or not Jesus intends for us to know him as water, as life-giving water, in John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, right? So imagine with a loud voice, Jesus is standing in front of a big group of people, and he says to them, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, right? So, okay, there's a guy yelling something, uh, thirsty people come to me. What does that mean? Does he have, does he have some water bottles he's going to distribute? Does he have some wine he's going to give out? What, what's going on here? Verse 38, whoever believes in me, this is still Jesus crying out, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A phrase like rivers of living water is not coincidental. It's intended to remind us of Exodus chapter 17, where from the rock, rivers of living water flow. From Jesus, uh, rivers of living water flow. Jesus is coming and saying, come to me, and my rivers of living water will satisfy your thirst. And here's the incredibly beautiful thing. The end of this verse says this. For those who have come to Jesus and they've had their souls quenched, their thirst quenched with his living water, now you become streams of living water to others. It doesn't mean you're their savior. You're, you're a tributary of the living water of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are described as people from whom uh, abundant living water will flow. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, Jesus will provide you with living water so abundant that your life will now be marked by rivers of living water flowing out of you. Again, no, not perfectly, but to some degree. Right? God, has, God has saved us by the living water of Jesus Christ, and now that living water flows from us. So, so what? So what about all this? Well, know that God is dealing graciously with you. If you don't know him as your Savior, know that he has taken the death blow so that you can receive life. Turn to him for living water. Come to him as your Savior before you stand before him as judge. And then just a few points of reflection and application for us. There, there are always two groups of people. Most basically, two groups of people. Those who know Christ as the living water and those who don't. So if you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus Christ to satisfy your soul during this wilderness wandering and you wonder why you're so intensely thirsty, you're so intensely thirsty because you're in a wilderness and you're thirsty. And there's nothing in this wilderness of, that, that we're wandering in that will quench that thirst. Jesus Christ is the only source. If you're thirsty, come to him. 
turn from your sin and trust in him. And if you do know him this morning, but maybe you're grumbling, remember that we're just remember we're still in the wilderness. And he has dealt graciously with us even here in the wilderness. And as is so often the theme here in Exodus chapter 17, like the people of Israel, brothers and sisters, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to trust and obey, to trust him, to trust that he has not abandoned us, that he, is, that he will provide for us. And we don't have to demand what we want from him, um, that, he will, that he will provide. And he has provided for us our greatest need, the need for spiritual water from the rock. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. We'll conclude our time. I'll invite the music team to come. And they'll close us in a song here in just a moment. If you're here this morning, though, and you don't know Jesus Christ as the living water to quench your soul, you, you can very simply, right there, even as you're seated, confess your sin to God, repent of your sin, and call out to Jesus to be your Savior from sin and to be the Lord of your life. And He will. He'll convert you. He'll change you. If you'd like to talk with me or one of the other pastors or maybe a lady in our church about these things, you're just not sure. Maybe you feel like you don't understand. We would be, there would, there's just nothing that would make us happier than to visit with you about that. But for many of us, we need to be reminded. It's just good to be reminded in, our, in the midst of our grumbling. It's good for us to remember we're in the wilderness. And even though we're in the wilderness, Christ has come to us as the fountain of living waters. So maybe some of us who know Christ as our Savior, maybe you're response this morning is to repent and again to remember, again to believe, again to be thankful for the fountain of living waters. I'm going to ask Paula to play through just the first verse quietly and you to pray there. And then after she plays through the verse just one time, then Jennifer will lead us in song. And then after that, Will will come and close our service in prayer.